Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to paraphrase Ringo Starr, confirmation of the site of the Okeechobee battlefield did not come easy. By 1985, local memory was hazy, having been handed down for several generations from 1837 when the battle was fought. In addition, hand-drawn maps from various sources contemporary to the battle did not necessarily match each other or the actual geographic features they represented in whole or in part. Consultants hired by land developers literally dug up dry holes through a subsurface that should have yielded artifacts from the clash. Oh, and the developers didn't want any pesky outside archeologists nosing around the property to prove them wrong and hold up, well, land development. Enter Bob Carr and Bill Steele on one end. We've podcasted with Bill Steele, who shared his recollections of the salvage operation for the Okeechobee battlefield. On the other end was Steve Carr, no relation to Bob. The Lake Worth, Florida native knew something was amiss. The self-described history hunter put on his thinking cap to assess the anomaly of the land, yielding no artifacts on a site that had to be the battlefield. Steve learned that the overall battlefield while swampy in 1837, was many decades later covered up with up to five feet of dirt to fill in the swamp and thereby let cattle graze. It's no wonder a shovel test proved no presence. The consultants were not digging deep enough because they did not know to suspect anything so far underneath. When the development began, excavation began, and bulldozers soon carved out landfill that reached the level of battle artifacts. Dumped in a pile on public land and out of legal recourse from the developer, Steve dug into the accumulating landfill hills to release the mountain of artifacts confirming through physical presence that this was indeed the battlefield. The precise context, of course, was lost, but Steve salvaged the artifacts, and since he witnessed the dirt transported from the battlefield, he knew he could associate anything he found with that site. In this episode, Steve Carr joins us to tell how he used those artifacts to recover an important historical and military battle site from the National Memory Hole. Steve was an excellent candidate to do this. He studied archeology span with the world famous D. Porter Dawson at the University of Georgia in 1978. In a stint with the U.S. Army, served with both the 5th Special Forces and 24th Infantry Divisions. He made three deployments to Central America Palm Beach County was fortunate to enjoy his services as a paramedic for 27 years. In a sense, that was most apropos. Steve patched up people as a paramedic, and he patched up our understanding of the Okeechobee battlefield with his salvage archaeology efforts. Now, despite Steve's primary application, he continued to pursue his archaeological interests on the side, as demonstrated with his 1980s work at Okeechobee. In 1993, he started salvage archaeology projects with Preserving Our Heritage director, Mike Crane. He has conducted numerous mound, ceramic, and Civil War site recovery projects. And 
For our specific interest, he has surveyed or examined 24 separate Seminole Wars battle sites, including Okeechobee and also the Lakahatchee surveys. He shared what he discovered during his 17 years teaching pioneer history at Barry University. Steve Carr, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Hey, and thank you for having me on. I really appreciate that. Steve, you've spent a good bit of time working archaeology issues for this battlefield at Okeechobee. What was it about this battlefield that you found so compelling to direct your efforts towards it? Well, I think there's really multiple layers of answers for that. I don't know that there's one simple one, but I think probably the thing that drew me strongest to it was that Zachary Taylor, who fought in that battle, led the troops in that battle, went on to become a president. I thought that was extremely valuable in terms of Florida history that a U.S. president fought in a battle on Florida soil. And yet that battlefield was undesignated. It was unfound and actually very poorly marked. The Daughters of the American Revolution had put a marker in the 1930s out on the roadway. But later on, a restaurant and bar was built there called Old Habits. And that pretty much blocked that marker out there. Everybody really lost the continuity of the battle. But it was such an, uh, an important um, turning point uh, in American history. But even more so, I think that the battle and the subsequent defeat of the Seminoles at that battle probably led Zachary Taylor into the White House. And that really intrigued me. And so my goal was to get up and just see. I'm kind of a history hunter at heart. I read and I study and I learn and then I go find it. So that's what drew me to Okeechobee. How far back was your first trip to Okeechobee? My first trip out there was probably in 85 or 86, and I went with a historian who was my parents' next-door neighbor. He taught at a local college, and I had sat with him for many years. He and I took a ride out there to try to find the battlefield, and of course, we couldn't. We did find the marker, but we couldn't. We had no idea where the battlefield was, but that was probably late 80s, mid to late 80s. Then we got in touch with the Devane brothers, Park Devane. And they had written a book. In the book, they mentioned almost exactly where the battlefield was because Billy Bowlegs had sat down and interviewed with the Devane brothers. And he told them that he found the marker, but he said the battlefield was about a half a mile further south. So with that, we had a pretty good idea where it might be. But we had a lot of problems, and the problems came in the realignment and the digging of the dike around the lake after the hurricane in 1928. That changed the landscape, and then also development in terms of changing a wetland into a usable property to raise cattle that meant bringing in fill. So a lot of those things that happened, and we just weren't really sure that we were ever going to hit ground zero and, and know where the battlefield was. So we gave up for a while, but then in the early 90s, they started doing some developments out um, around the rim there. And every development that they did, we just started coming back in with metal detectors, trying to see if we could find something that might signify where the battlefield was. And how successful was that? Virtually, I want to say the first three or four times, we just found trash, rubbish, metal that wasn't related. It drew us in and we really, really wanted to find it, but we weren't having the luck. We're hoping that at some point, professional archaeologists would get involved and help us relocate it, but I wasn't on that end of it. I was an amateur that was looking for it. How much cooperation did you get from land developers? Initially, 
None. As a matter of fact, we were asked not to cross. It was a multiple home. I want to say probably three to 400 homes there in that northeast corner. When they started to do that development, they started with digging out ponds to use the fill because the area was very, very low and wet in there. So what they decided to do was dig ponds and then fill that in. And we thought, we can get back there where they dug the ponds. Maybe we can find the fill that's coming out of there. They will be reusing the fill. At that time, we just took a shot on a weekend. They weren't working. We started working those fill piles, and those things were about 8 to 10 feet high. That was when the light went off and the bell rang. We found musket balls in those piles, and we found other artifacts in those piles. And we knew that that development was part of the battle. We didn't know what part of the battlefield, whether it was the beginning, the middle, or the end, but uh, we, we knew that at least part of the battle had taken place there. The bottom line was they were actually dumping the fill on a public site. They had gotten permission to do it. It wasn't like we were trespassing onto the property there where they were doing the development. They were actually bringing the fill around and then dumping it. So we were able to access through one of the back roads and it was just piled up along the road there. What we did is we just started working those piles. So I did not have any direct connection to the developer at that time. We were just working those salvage piles. They were pulling out that they were later going to use for fill once the site was developed. So what was their reaction to this? They really just didn't know we were there. We were going up and down. You could just imagine it's right on the side of the road. Back then, kids wanted to play in those dirt piles. They were about 8 to 10 feet tall. Kids could play. Anybody could do anything with it. The developer didn't care. They weren't even thinking in terms of battlefield. They were just thinking of what they had to do to get the dirt out for the ponds. But we worked in there, and then we got some help. We came back another weekend and got some more artifacts that came back. By the time they got around to recovering the dirt there, they were there were a couple of people that were working the bulldozer, and we went up and we asked them exactly where the dirt came from. And they told us, they showed us where the ponds were. I told them at the time we were finding artifacts from the Battle of Okeechobee. They actually allowed us to go back where the pond was, and we went around that pond, and we did not find much. It was, But what we understood from this is that the Battle of Okeechobee was probably between three and five feet under the current surface out there. And our metal detectors would have done absolutely no good, and which is why for the years before that we tried to find we didn't find any artifacts. I think when they dug the rim ditch around the lake, they dumped some of the fill over there on top of it, and then they flattened it out, and that's what allowed the cattlemen to use that wetland for grazing. So we think there's probably up to maybe 1,500 acres that were filled in, and probably all or a substantial part, if not all, was battlefield. And if you've studied the battle, you remember them saying that the Seminoles lured the soldiers into a, a wet area where the soldiers struggled to get through the water and the sawgrass. But that was all filled in, as it is today. It's 100% filled in out there. The strong point I want to make here is that had they not dug out those ponds, and had we not been lucky enough to get those fill piles and get into those and work them, you never would have seen an artifact from the Battle of Okeechobee, with the very exception of the few that Bill Steele and Bob Carr turned up. They worked their butts off out there and turned up very, very few artifacts. I think there was a lead bar, there was a bayonet, and there was some lead shot, but not much for the amount of time that they put in.
I think Wes Coleman was involved in that survey as well, the archaeological survey. They turned up very, very little. Steve, you had to conduct rescue archaeology, or they call salvage archaeology, which is when you don't have a lot of time because somebody's going to do something with the property if you don't act right away. How prevalent is the need for this in a state such as Florida? Florida is highly conducive to salvage archaeological projects, and that's because the bulldozers come long before the archaeologists in most cases. In so many places around Florida, if you're a historian, or in my case, an avocational archaeologist, somebody who is not educated for that, but does it for a hobby. Bob Carr, not related to me, we have the same last name. He sent me a letter. That's what he labeled me as. And I was so impressed by it. I've used that for the rest of my life. In the case of Okeechobee, not unlike so many other archaeological sites around Florida, it's not that we don't have tremendous amounts of history. I mean, we have 12,000 years of human history, maybe more in Florida, but you rarely see anybody doing anything to preserve it. And you almost never see a roadside historical site, at least not in South Florida. There again, not that we don't have it, it's just we've done a very poor job preserving it and showcasing it. So to get to the difference between salvage archaeology and let's say a professional archaeological survey, I'll give you an example of the Fort Center project that was done by William Sears and four different universities, University, Vanderbilt University and Florida State or two that come to mind. But those projects are scientifically studied using students and volunteers. And what they will do is they'll take soil samples and different uh, from different levels. They'll identify the types of soil, plants, things like that. And then probably 75% of the job is done in libraries or today on doing computer work, computer studies. That wasn't available to us back then. And because most development projects were started without any applicable Florida laws that would prevent it. The only laws back then to prevent it were known Native American burials. So you couldn't disturb a burial site. That's the only law that prevented the developer from developing a site. Talk about when, in this long, detailed process, archaeologists might be called in. By the time development process begins, all the permitting is done, tracks are let out, equipment is rented, and things like that. So trying to come in while the bulldozers are moving, it's just too late. It's past the time of opportunity for historians to find out the maximum we can find out. A developer doesn't want to stop things because he's on a timeline and he's putting his money, his investment into that property to create whatever it is they want to create. By that time, really, the history is out the window. And so this changes to the state of Florida, and the state of Florida actually just needed stronger historic protection laws prior to the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s when development was rampant. We just didn't have laws to protect historic sites, either by design or just because it had, there wasn't enough interest. The developers, they don't want to see a guy swinging a metal. They don't want to do anything that's going to tie up the project. And most especially, what they wouldn't want us to find is a Native American burial. Even today, the Florida Archaeological Resource Protection Act, it failed many trial tests over and over. As a matter of fact, Mel Fisher, state of Florida, took Mel Fisher, who was noted as probably the greatest treasure finder of all time, who found the Atocha. The state of Florida sued him, and Mel Fisher won all times because the ARPA law just it couldn't be written to give it any teeth. With that said, 
I think the state just threw up the white flag and said, geez, if we can't beat Mel Fisher, we're definitely not going to beat developers who are putting in a hotel or a marina or whatever it is that they're doing. But what they did do is they did change ARPA so that historical protection had to be maintained by government-owned property, like, for instance, a city, municipality, a county, or even state-owned property. Those have strong, strong, strong development laws that keep the state from doing it, keep counties from doing it, keep cities from doing it. They have to be studied and permitted and things like that. To private landowners, which had those ARPA laws written for them, they're now almost free to do pretty much whatever they want. What they've done is landowners now are just to avoid the implication that they're just totally destroying historic sites. Now what they're doing is is they're hiring archaeologists to do surveys of their property before they do a major development so they know what they're getting into. Well, that sounds like progress. The reason for that, the Miami Circle, which was supposed to be a hotel project, actually ended up as a World Heritage Site. That hotel project was stopped. The state of Florida acquired the land, and that developer almost went bankrupt because of all the money he spent for the program. So developers are saying, okay, we're going to work with the state, but that might mean that they give five acres of preservation and then they develop 60 acres for their project. So developers are more likely to come around now, but in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there was just nothing to stop them from doing whatever they wanted to do. Guys like me had to get in front of the bulldozers. We had to get out and find these historic sites like the Okeechobee Battlefield. We wanted to find it before it was developed. A rancher sold the property off and we never had an opportunity to recover any artifacts, that would have been horrible. We were lucky with Okeechobee that a small percentage of the battlefield was saved and converted into a state park. We were very lucky, but that's almost never the case. That's not the rule in, in development. It usually doesn't go that way. We lose these sites. We were told about this development that they were doing out there, so we got as quick as we could. We did not have access to the property. That was made perfectly clear, although we tried. At that time, I was working for an organization called Preserving Our Heritage, Inc., headed by Mike Crane. Mike Crane had started the organization, and he created a watchdog group to pinpoint historical places like Okeechobee Battlefield, Loxahatchee Battlefield, pinpoint those on a Florida map, And then Mike would send us out there to find out any information we could find. Mike would work with landowners. He had a pretty good idea of where the property or where the historic site was. He would find out who the landowner was and try to work with them. In this case, all we got was that the property was under development. So what we did is instead of crossing over trespassing, we just worked the dirt piles that they pulled up and dumped on a right-of-way. That gave us the access to get in there, and that's where... Probably 80% of the artifacts that I recovered from the Okeechobee battlefield came from those dirt piles. Unfortunately, artifacts, I don't want to say they're meaningless, but they have no context to the battle. All they do is they prove that battle was fought there. But now, without knowing what their distribution pattern was, how they were used, how deep they were found, we lose so much of the educational process of what an archaeological survey would actually produce versus a salvage project. Again, we have to ask ourselves, what is the importance of the artifacts? What do they tell us and what will they do for us? The artifacts, if you look up the definition, it's proof of human existence. And in this case, these artifacts are proof of a conflict and a conflict in which a future U.S. president took part in. But also, it is the most dynamic battle of the entire Second Seminole War, the highest number of troops fought, 
highest number of casualties on the American side. We don't know what the Seminole casualties were, but certainly the largest accumulation of Seminoles, black freedom fighters in the history of probably all of the Florida Native American wars. African-Americans who were fighting with the Seminoles, they were seeking freedom down here. They had allied themselves. They were fighting elbow to elbow with the Seminoles. So this was just a major, major conflict in U.S. history, but it resonates so strongly with our history. These artifacts prove that all of that happened. That's why it was important to me to get some proof. Getting that proof allowed us to say, okay, we know where the battlefield is. We don't know how it played out. Later, Bob Carr with Historic Research and Bill Steele in West Coleman, they were able to pretty much document the way the battle went, given the narratives that were left from uh, contemporary times. Getting some artifacts to go with those narratives allows us to complete the circle. We didn't get as big a circle as we'd like, but we got a big enough circle so we could confirm that that was the battle. It then really allowed the state to come in and say, yeah, we need to preserve some portion or part of, of that battlefield. And they did through a lot of work from the Okeechobee Battlefield friends, Sean Henderson and Dowling Watford. Names stand out. State Representative Maychak, he went out of his way to help us to once we got that designation, we knew that that work that we had done had paid off. Once we got that, then I was able to turn over the artifacts to the Okeechobee Battlefield Friends. In some cases where you're doing salvage archaeology and you're just ahead of the bulldozers, you want to get everything you can because you're never going to get another chance. Once the concrete is down or once a home is built, that's lost to to recovery archaeology. You want to try to get it, but in an archaeological survey, you would never want to, in one survey, try to get everything. For me, it was never really about the artifacts. Do I love finding them? Yes, I do. Do I love being the first one to hold a musket ball after the guy, last soldier fired it back in 1837? Yes, I want to be the first guy. Of course, it's exciting. Any archaeology is exciting to find things. But more importantly is what do they tell us? Holding on to them doesn't do any good. And I know guys who go out and scavenge archaeological sites and never use their artifacts for public education. And I think that's just a shame that that happens. We have sites that are constantly being hammered by, they're not archaeologists, and they're, they're just people who want to get access to artifacts. And the sad thing is, once they do, we lose the context of the history. Can you ever get enough archaeology or artifacts? The answer is yes, because we always need to leave some for the future generations to study. Steve, you've called yourself a history hunter. Talk about the difference between a history hunter and a treasure hunter. I call myself a history hunter. And the treasure hunter would do it for profit or would do it for recognition. And I've seen that with Native American arrowheads, guys who've got 2,000 arrowheads. They don't do it to help understand the Native Americans. They do it for their own good. I'd like to draw the, the line between the two, between history hunting and treasure hunting. I would not be looking for a significant artifact out there. What I would be looking for is diagnostic artifacts. Sometimes a dropped musket ball can tell you as much as Zachary Taylor's belt buckle because it's where it's dropped. How is it dropped? Are there more musket balls around it? Was somebody getting rained on with musket fire and so they had to withdraw? There's a lot of things that can be told by patterns of archaeology that can't be told by a single artifact on its own. One way to find that musket ball may be with a LIDAR, the ground-penetrating radar. What's your thoughts on that or this? 
battlefield? I'm not so sure that a LIDAR study would help because what LIDAR does, and, and I'm not the expert really to talk about this, I'm only somewhat familiar with it, whereas there are some people that could describe it a lot better. But what LIDAR can do is it can tell us what changes have taken place in that area since the battle. And, and as I was talking to you before, the addition of fill material uh, to fill in that swamp so that the cattlemen could use it, that fill coming from the creation of the dikes around the lake, any changes in the land, any land use patterns, um, also buildings or foundations that might have been there that are no longer there. And of course, in 1837, there were none of those. So LIDAR really isn't going to tell us much other than how the property has changed over, let's say, the last 100 years. In some cases, LIDAR is incredibly important to an archaeological site. Sites like Mayan sites, you can do a LIDAR study and you can see things in the ground and you can understand how the property was used. And when you're doing an archaeological study, you want to know everything, everything you can possibly know about that, including if there was agriculture going on. That sometimes can be determined. Rocks were put into a formation to build a foundation. That can be determined. So LIDAR does a lot, but for Second Seminole War sites, it doesn't tell us much. LIDAR will not see a bullet in the ground or a magnetically produce a bayonet or a gun barrel or something like that. It just doesn't happen that way. LIDAR doesn't do that. What it does do is it looks for changes in human occupation over a period of years. Okay, Steve, but let's say you do find a musket ball. However, it's found. LIDAR, shovel dig, happenstance, good luck, what have you. What do you do with that musket ball? Let me give you an example. If you find a musket ball, let's say we want to use a musket ball from the battle as a diagnostic artifact. First, what we want to do is determine what size is it, what caliber is it. And that helps us to understand whether it was a military musket ball or if it was a Native American musket ball. Let's say we determine it's a small caliber, not typically used by the military. So let's go with the theory that it's a Native American musket ball. Then you're asking yourself, okay, which direction it come from? And that musket ball may have traveled free flight distance of, let's say, 200 yards. So now we have a 200-yard datum point that we're going to reach out to. And now we know we can get an idea of where that musket ball is coming from. You see where I'm going? One musket ball can lead to a rabbit trail of many, many, many other historical events. And so every artifact can also do that. It's the same thing with finding a button. Is it a military button, Native American button? If it's military, is it an officer's button? Is it an enlisted button? Is it a militia button? If it's a militia button, now we know the militia was in that area. And maybe books and diaries have said the militia were further south. Well, now we've got a diagnostic artifact that tells us, no, the militia might have been in a different position. Every artifact has the potential to be a diagnostic artifact if you can find it in context to the battlefield. And that's the sad thing about the artifacts that we recovered is that they were removed from the context of the battlefield. But by the same token, those artifacts were three to five feet deep. That means that's how much fill was over the top of them before they were coming out of that pond. Nobody would have ever found them. A LIDAR study would have not found those artifacts. They just never would have been found if not for development. It's just backwards of the way it normally goes. It's a cat biting the dog or whatever. It's, it's just different. But we got lucky out there. And that's all it is. We just really got lucky.
that luck translated into enough information. What Bob and Bill found was enough really to call it the battlefield. And I think what we found was just pretty much icing on the cake. So thanks to your work and the work of Bob Carr and company, you've all been able to locate the site of the battlefield. My question then is, how much were you actually able to rescue and how much is part of the battlefield park today? It's very, very tiny area uh, there. And how much association that site has with the battle, I would say minimal. I know right directly across from the fire station where the park is today, that's where the bayonet was found. And then they found a cut lead bar out there. But that very well could have been a staging area for the battle before the battle. Billy Bowlegs III told Park Devane that the battle was not fought where the marker was. The He said it was fought south of the marker. About a half a mile south would be the center of the battlefield. Today, where the state park is, that's actually north of the old EAR marker. So I doubt that that part had much to do with the battle. However, it helps to represent it. You made the comment that it looks pretty good. I think it's far and away removed from what it would have looked like because we're talking about deep cypress water up to these guys between their waist and their armpits in some cases. Until they reached up into the hammocks there, it was a very, very difficult battle to, to fight. And we're not seeing that in the state park at all. We're not seeing anything like that, that type of terrain. Reenactments are for public consumption. And what the reenactments do for us, it just brings attention to the fact that something historical happened there. They are entertaining. I've done reenacting. I've been part of reenacting. They're more educating if you're a reenactor than if you're a watcher of a reenactment because that's where you figure out how to do everything that they were doing back in the past. But that said, there's a lot of them around the state of Florida. They do a lot to bring public attention, and that's how you get sites like that preserved is by getting people interested in the history. So many people are moving to Florida, a thousand people a day move to Florida, and they come from New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, anywhere. Their history is there. So we have to re-educate those people every single day. And when they buy into a development in this area, they have no idea what's around them. And so our job as historians is to, through any way we can, to educate them. And if a reenactment educates them, if doing living histories educates them, then, then we're doing our job. How have you used those artifacts to educate the public separate from the battle reenactment events? First thing we did, they went into preserving our heritage with a nonprofit organization. And preserving our heritage used them for years and years in public education, reenactments, or anywhere where members could have the opportunity to do public education regarding Florida history. If those artifacts were pertinent, then they just got checked out and they were used. I taught part-time at Barry University. I would use Okeechobee artifacts and Loxatchee Battlefield artifacts as well to talk about the Second Seminole War in my history programs. So that was the case. They were used. And, and then when Okeechobee Battlefield Friends acquired a permanent facility, then everything was donated over to them. Now you can go and see it. People can actually go and they don't have to wait for one of our educators to get out there and bring it to them. They can go see it anytime in the, in the Okeechobee Museum. Steve, you still doing presentations for the public? Well, not as much as I used to. I'm retired now, and I'm at that point now where I'm donating as much as I can so I don't have to get out on the road. 
But if I find a really good facility, like the Elliott Museum, we just donated all of the artifacts from the Ashley Gang. We just opened an enormous exhibit up at Elliott Museum in Stewart and uh, opened an exhibit. It's a permanent exhibit on the on the Ashley Gang, which were the notorious bandits of Florida in the 1920s. So we just donated about 300 artifacts from sites that they inhabited over their career. What I'm doing today is trying to find educational facilities that can use these to, to educate people. And we've got a proposed visitor center that's partially funded on the Loxahatchee Battlefield, that all of the Loxahatchee Battlefield artifacts that we've recovered will go to them as well. We're almost out of time. Steve, parting thoughts. First of all, I'm very thankful for what you do, reaching out to people. We need to do more of that because in public education now, there's very little to do with American history, almost nothing. And it's sad that kids are now being educated without a knowledge of their history, be it local or, or national. It falls on people like you and me to get out there and try to reach these kids and express the importance of having a history to lock down on. Look, if if kids don't appreciate the history of the place they live in, why would they save it? They don't know it's there. How can they? The long way around the barn here is that we need to do the job that the schools are not doing now. And I think you know that. I know that probably most of your listeners are already aware of the fact that schools are just ditching American history altogether. It's sad, but that doesn't mean that kids can't learn it. There are other ways, and podcasts are, are probably one of the better ways to reach people that wouldn't get it any other way. This is the way it has to go. You know, we have to shift our, our thinking. If the public is not going to be educated by the school system, then we have to look to it on our own. And as I get older, it gets tougher and tougher for me to put the miles on. I used to do all the reenactments and set up and discuss it. And it's getting tougher for me to do that. I'd like some younger people to come along and pick up the torch and do this. But I think you know, with you establishing a podcast, that is important. And hopefully other people will do what you're doing, not only with this history, but history across the nation. Steve Carr, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you for having me. I hope um, you will be around for our convocation coming up in April on the Loxahatchee Battlefield. I will be there, and the Loxahatchee Battlefield Preservationists will be greeting the delegation from the tribe of Oklahoma. The Seminole tribe of Oklahoma is coming in bringing in their delegation, and we're going to have a wonderful convocation. So if you don't mind me doing a little advertising, I would appreciate getting that out there to your listeners. I appreciate you having me anytime. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.